Today's podcast is sponsored by amyberrickman.com. Amy is the founder of Indigo Junction and the author of the award-winning book, Vintage Notions, an inspirational guide to needlework, cooking, sewing, fashion, and fun. Visit Amy's blog and sign up for her newsletter to follow her journey as she curates and shares fabulous images and projects for you to create with. Amy's newsletter will notify you about upcoming Vintage Made Modern videos and Vintage Notions live events. So check it out at amyberrickman.com. Thank you so much, Amy. And now, here's the show. episode 168 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about building a crochet business with my guest, Tony Lipsy. Tony is the designer and instructor behind TL Yarncrafts. Through her printable patterns and cheery video tutorials, she strives to make crochet accessible to makers of every skill level. Tony learned to crochet as a teen, but honed her skills after graduating college. She was bitten by the entrepreneur bug in 2015 and began TL Yarncrafts as a finished product business. Designing soon became the focus, and she was able to quit her day job in 2017. At present, Tony spends her time nurturing her community of over 175,000 makers across platforms by offering approachable crochet patterns and handmade business wisdom. Tony Lipsy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Abby. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk to you about all things crochet and small business. And I would love to begin by talking about um, you growing up. I know you grew up in Michigan. Um, mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about, um, well, I guess mostly about your mom. Um, she sounds mm-hmm. like quite a um, uh, sort of knitting and crochet guru herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it was a really uh, I, I think I had a really kind of prized growing up period because there was always creativity around me, even when I wasn't taking part of it personally. My mom learned how to knit and crochet from one of her aunts uh, when she was quite young. And she also knew how to sew. My mom did hair. She made furniture like my mom did everything. And I think um, part of it was out of necessity because we were an army household. And once my father got out of the service and we settled in Michigan, you know, we didn't have, you know, the greatest means. So I think my mom made the most out of her creativity and the resources that she had, which, you know, in itself was a really great lesson to learn. But when it came to her creating, um, even with the means that we had, we had no idea that we were struggling at any point because we always lived in this very warm and comfortable home. We had handmade drapes. We had hand-covered pillows. She made us blankets. She made a lot of our clothes for a long time. I was the only um, girl child in our house, so my mom always did my hair. Like We were always very nurtured and taken care of. So when it finally got to the point when I picked up crocheting from my mom, I mean, she could have picked out of her toolkit any craft and she gave me crochet. And that was, it's just so close to my heart. And we can now share that as adults. That's wonderful. That's so, so nice. And to feel so nurtured by craft is also just amazing. Um, and also her ingenuity too. So how old were you when you did learn to crochet and sort of were you like bored one summer or what was, mm-hmm. what was the circumstances? Yeah, that's exactly the situation. I was, uh, I was 13 years old and at that point, like I have two other brothers and we have family that's kind of spread out a little bit. So I remember that summer, my younger brother was staying with my grandma for the summer. I was home and I think my older brother was involved in some sports or something, but I wasn't 
really doing much that summer, just kind of hovering around my mom. And I think it just got to a point when I was driving her nuts and she's like, okay, I just need you to be doing something else. So um, she actually started a granny square for me, which is just so classic and crochet. And uh, she gave me the hook. She gave me the square. She showed me how to do it and basically just said, keep going. And she just said, keep going in a circle as big as it goes. When you need more yarn, let me know. So we kept going and I ended up with a very large, very hideous <laughs> camouflage blanket. Um, and I remember, like, I, I I can't set the entire scene, but for some reason that camo and how hideous it is just sticks in my mind. And um, I have no idea where that blanket is right now, but that memory of spending those weeks together crafting and I'm sure just kind of, you know, talking about life and, and things we had in common like that just nestles inside of my heart now. So when I, now that I can crochet as a means to, you know, help support my household, it just, it constantly reminds me that this is something that I love to do before it's something that became my profession. Mm -hmm. That's great. So um, when you did graduate from high school and go off to college, um, what did you study? And did you feel like you wanted to do something artistic? Or was that sort of, you know, were you being more practical at that time? Um, it definitely more practical. I think with both of my parents having been in the military, with knowing and understanding the importance of education and having gainful employment, like I was really focused on making sure that whatever I went to school for, I could eventually get a job. And I didn't have an idea at that point of being able to get a job doing anything artistic. Like arts were hobbies in my mind at that point. And that was fine, you know, when I was when I was in my, my teens and early 20s. So I went to undergrad for psychology. It's always a topic I was really interested in and thought, you know, maybe I could become a professor or work for a university, something like that. Uh, I did end up sticking around my same school and went back there for grad school in nonprofit administration um, because I had been in a volunteer um, kind of Greek organization in college and got a better understanding of the fact that you can work in nonprofit and actually make money. I think at that point, uh, I didn't, I, I thought everyone who worked in nonprofit was volunteers, but um, I better understood that that could be a profession. So went into nonprofit administration and uh, honestly, all the way through college and grad school, I, I didn't pick up a hook. The, that entire six years, it never even crossed my mind. Okay. So were you doing anything artistic at all or nothing? Not really. I think at that point, it was a lot of um, spending time with friends. I was volunteering a lot at that point. I got a lot more involved in that Greek organization and volunteering and fundraising. Um, there was also, you know, a really big election around that time. So I was super involved with that. So there were a lot of other just distractions going on. And the arts weren't really part of my life. Like I, th they had, you know, like plays and things like that going on on campus that I would go to. But as far as anything with my hands, not at all. Okay. Just not part of my reality at that time. <laughs> okay. So when you graduated from graduate school, did you actually go on to get a job in nonprofit administration? I did. It was actually my favorite job that I've ever had. <laughs> it was um, it was with an, a local organization here in Columbus. And my job was with a program called Dental Options. And basically, we connected low income families and children with dentists to do low or no cost dental work. And it was in that position that I came to understand like how important dental health is, how high the barriers are, especially when it comes to traditional um, and, you know, government run health care. Like it's it's not well covered like regular medical health care is. So it was so rewarding to, you know, help a kid get braces or help someone get a bridge or, you know, just these little things that you know, through our day-to-day -day life, we might not consider, like if we have tooth pain, we go to the dentist, we get it fixed, we move on. But for some people, this is a major roadblock to their quality of life. So being able to 
help use that that money and that resource and those connections to you know build up a person and a family essentially was was super important. I worked there for several years before I moved on. That's amazing. And I was in Teach for America and I worked in the Mississippi Delta and I had my second year, I had an eighth grader named Carmen and she lost um, uh, an adult tooth. Um, during her eighth grade year, like from tooth decay. Um, and it was incredibly painful, you know, for her. And, um, it was due to not having good dental care and it was, um, it was really hard to watch. And so she could, her family could have definitely used something like that. And in the Delta, there's very few resources like that. So I can definitely see how important that would have been, how gratifying that kind of work would have been. For sure. Especially I'm sure for, for a person her age. Yeah, she was really young, exactly, only in eighth grade, 14, so um, for sure. So, okay, so you did that for a while, and then it sounds like maybe you got another job sort of in the same um, kind of vein of nonprofits. Yeah, I actually moved up in that same organization and moved over to a program um, that connected people to food resources. So, you know, especially in a time like this, there's food scarcity that people have to deal with. And we worked with what was essentially a call center where people would call in. And they would let us know where they live, the size of their family, any kind of food restrictions they have. And we would connect them with one of dozens of food pantries here in the Columbus area. And that was really rewarding because we got a lot of first-time callers. So people who were recently out of work, people who are new to the area, people who had moved to a different part of Columbus and found themselves not knowing where their next meal was coming from for the first time in their lives. So letting them know resources are available. You can get them within the next few hours. Um, you could get them delivered if necessary. Like they're sometimes the most tricky part about giving help is connecting it to the people who really need it and being able to work in these kinds of jobs and being that conduit between the need and the person uh, was so helpful because there there were folks who had been scraping by for such a long time and had no idea that they could very easily get five days worth of food, you know, just from a phone call. Um, so I worked, uh, I was the manager of that program for several years, um, had a lot of really great folks working under me, were able to build some systems and some resources to make that process even easier. So even after um, one of the things I was doing right before I left was we were working on an online resource. So for people who did have access to the internet, instead of having to call and sometimes wait on hold for a while, they could just go online and, and get their reservations themselves. Um, so I was definitely able to watch that program grow over a few years and, and really leave my mark, I think. That's fantastic. I'm so impressed, honey. These are really fantastic jobs that you've had. And, and so somewhere along these lines, as um, we mentioned in the introduction, you um, you started um, a business with your crochet or you got, I guess, reintroduced. We should start there. Reintroduced to crochet. So, um, so talk about how you kind of picked up your hook again and found it again. Um, was it a way to kind of de-stress after work or was there a particular project or gift that you made for somebody where you were like, hey, I could do that out of crochet? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so funny story. I, I actually graduated grad school in 2010. And um, that was during, you know, a really major recession. Everybody was feeling it. And I, I think when I was actually in college, we were all living in a little bit of this bubble that was like, you know, well, we're going to be fresh college graduates. Everyone's going to want to hire us. And um, I graduated and I couldn't find a job for like six solid months. So uh, my husband, who we were married at that time. We'd been married for a few months and he moved down to Columbus to kind of get settled and get established. I still needed to finish my second semester of grad school. So when I was done, I moved down to Columbus, new city, new like relationship, basically, um, just knew everything. Being away from my family was really, really tricky. And then coming out in this recession, with this brand new degree and barely any experience. Uh, I wasn't able to find anything for a long time. So I needed something to fill my time with because I had essentially been working since I was 15 years old, as young as I could. Uh, and this is my first time that I'd ever experienced unemployment. So I went to Pinterest because I used to hang out on Pinterest a lot for like 
hair care and just recipes, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and I started looking up crafts. So there were these bracelets that everyone was making at this time. I don't know if you remember them. I think they were inspired by Chan Lu. And uh, everyone was making these bracelets. So I was like, I'm going to make these bracelets. And I'm going to sell them on the internet. And everyone's going to love them. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, went, I went to uh, my local craft store, bought all the stuff, came home, made two bracelets. And I was like, Ugh, I hate it. I'm not going to do this anymore. So, so I went back to the craft store and I was like, well, I need something to do, something to fill the time, something to make me honestly feel useful and productive because I didn't feel that at the time because I couldn't find a job. So uh, I wandered into the yarn aisle and every time I tell this story and I remember this moment so vividly, it's it's like in the movies when the lights get really bright and the angels start to sing and like just, you know, it just feels like home and it feels very familiar and like you found it, kind of had that moment of like you found your thing. Um, so I wandered down, I, I grabbed some crochet hooks. I didn't know what sizes and, and what to do. I just grabbed some stuff, got some yarn, went home, went back on Pinterest, found some free patterns and just retaught myself. Um, Cause you know, after doing that original Afghan at 13, like all I knew how to do was a granny square and double crochet stitches. I didn't know what yarn I was using, what hook I was using. So it was a little bit of a discovery, you know, kind of starting fresh in, in reintroducing myself. But that same um, that same kind of spark that I had from when I originally learned and shared that time with my mom kind of came back and really encouraged me to get better at this craft. So, um, you know, as time went on, I eventually started working again. I did continue to build up my stash and, and just worked on it on the side. And, uh, you know, when the actual business picked up, you know, I switched gears a little bit, but it was a hobby for, you know, the first couple of years for sure. And I know your mom tells this story because I read an article about her in the newspaper <laughs> about <laughs> sort of the, the first time she discovered, and I think she was in Europe, that there was like a yarn shop. You know, yeah. like, um, you know, and, and maybe I don't know how many local yarn shops there really were in the U.S. at that time. But um, but I'm wondering, you know, I feel like a lot of hobbyists, they begin by going to Michael's or Joanne or, you know, one of the big box mm -hmm. stores, even Walmart and, and getting yarn, you know, and maybe it's an acrylic yarn or something inexpensive or whatever. And then there's this moment where you sort of jump over to the kind of premium stuff, you know, and yeah. I'm wondering <laughs> if, if that happened for you, if, if you were like, wait a minute, there's better stuff out there. And right. if, if you remember when that happened. Oh, absolutely. I 100% remember. Um, so I had been working with basically acrylic yarns or like sometimes, you know, I, I feel like right around 2012, 13, maybe um, some of the big box stores kind of started to dabble in nicer fibers, but it was still like an acrylic base. So uh, that moment kind of when I got my inner yarn snob flared uh, <laughs> up in there. <laughs> There was a there's a really small, very cute yarn shop here in Columbus called Yarnet and Haberdashery. So they opened up in I want to say 2011 or 12, and um, I was friends with a woman who ran a very big craft show out here. She was friends with the woman who was work opening up Yarn and Dash. She knew that I crocheted. She was like, yeah, you should go check this place out. Uh, and they actually were taking Polaroids the day that they opened. They had a line and all these special promotions. So I ended up in one of the Polaroid photos that they put up on the wall of the shop. It was a whole to-do. Um, but I went in there and the experience at a local yarn store is so different from, you know, a big box craft store. Like things are set up differently. They're arranged differently. There's brands that you've never seen before. Like even the shapes of hooks are different. Like everything's different. So I just went in and totally blacked out. I can't even <laughs> and don't want to tell you how much money I spent that day. But I was like, oh, yeah, I got all this new pretty stuff. I bought a yarn ball winder and a swift for the first time. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm super fancy now. Um, so I think that was the point when I started to really appreciate, you know, how different a merino wool feels from an acrylic. Um, I found the types of hooks that I really like. And I got a lot more appreciation, too, about just supporting a small business. Because, you know, if we don't go, then they can't stay open. If there's not a demand from the community, then they're going to end up closing their doors. And it became really important to me to find those stores and seek out those opportunities to support these kind of niche little shops around my town. 
I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Amy Berrickman. Amy Berrickman, and my business is amyberrickman.com. So tell us a little bit about the image library that's on your website. So within the image library, we have both graphic images that were from vintage labels, maybe from needle cases, children's books that are teaching sewing, charming graphics just with unique graphic design elements. And those can be printed just in their original format, or they can be used in collage. We love to print on fabric and then embellish the images with beads and embroidery. The idea being whether you're making maybe tags for your own artwork or you're creating you know, a product printed image that then is appealing to someone who you know, has a passion for sewing or quilting. That's what we love to provide is just something unique and special that you can create with. You know, Abby, the other opportunity with amyberrickman.com is that um, makers are welcome to use these images in their own projects. And we have you know, like an angel policy. So if you're looking for inspiration to actually print and design with these images, you are welcome to. So I love being able to inspire people with on the business side, as well as on the creative side. So I'm hoping I can do more of that with amyberrickman.com as well. Um, And I hear you have a newsletter that people should probably check out. Yes, the newsletter keeps everyone up to date on, you know, new videos we have, new art that's put on the site, and any other, you know, Vintage Notions live events is another um, new activity that we're hosting. Again, yes, please. The newsletter is the great, a great place to, to sign up and, and be made aware of what's new at amyberrickman.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy. And congratulations on the relaunch of your site. Thanks for having me, Abby. Thanks for hosting this. Thank you so much, Amy. And now back to my conversation with Tony. You started to, I mean, I, I'm imagining you were making things for friends and family And then you started to sell finished goods, I think maybe at your husband's encouragement Mm -hmm. uh, or prompting, um, and at maybe like at local fairs and and things like that. Do I have that that part right? Yeah. Um, So so what eventually happened is over the course of several years, you know, my family and friends very gently told me like, we're good on the hats and scarves. Still wear the one you gave me last year. So I'm good. So I knew that I was going to continue to make these things. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to keep them all in my house. I need to do something with them. So I decided to start selling at craft fairs at that point. And uh, I still remember my very first craft fair was literally in a church basement. And um, it was, it was the weirdest setup because like on the outside of this event, space was all the people selling their handmade stuff but in the middle kind of aisle it was like a garage sale it was it was literally just grab whatever you want bring it up to the front and we'll haggle a price so it was a it was a very weird setup I think I sold one thing but that was a success to me and uh, that was all the spark that I needed to just sign up for every craft fair I could find and you know I guess talk a little bit about um I guess to me, it seems like it's hard. It's hard Mm -hmm. to crochet something, which takes a lot of time, Mm -hmm. um, and then price it accordingly um, for profit and sell it um, at a craft fair and have a sustainable business that's going to allow you to leave your day job. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know if you, if, if, like, how did that go? I guess is what I'm asking. Um, so the, so teal yarn crafts kind of evolved, um, a bit from that point. So I was selling at craft fairs pretty solidly for two years. Um, once I got a better understanding of, you know, when in the year to sell, uh, how to price my items, how to set up my booth, like all of this was stuff that I learned along the way. Um, listening to a lot of podcasts, reading a lot of blog posts, uh, it, it just, it kind of evolved over time. And I feel like I got a little bit better at it with each show. I tweaked something and 
the progress and the effort really started to have a return. Uh, eventually, how I transitioned from craft shows to designing is uh, there was one particular hat and, and I had this vision for this hat and everybody's going to love it and want to wear it. And I looked for patterns everywhere. At that point, everything I was making was based off an already established pattern. So I looked for patterns everywhere. I could not find one that had the perfect combination of all the things I was looking for in this hat. So I took my very meager skills and just kind of started to throw something together and I edited it and tweaked it until it actually fit and looked cute. And I was like, huh, this is the hat that I've been imagining. And I made a ton of them and they sold like hotcakes at craft shows. Um, so then I finally got on Instagram and started sharing photos of this hat and people started asking, wow, what is how do you make it? How do I get the pattern? And at that point, I had no concept of even how patterns were created. I just knew they were there. <laughs> so um, then I, I designed that pattern. It was terrible and, and hideous, but somebody figured it out and actually made it. And uh, that's kind of the transition. And that's really where the business started to take off. And this is the mega palm beanie. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's my first baby. Okay. All right. And what <laughs> made this one, like, why did people, why did people want this one? Like, what was it about it that made people say, I want to, I want to crochet one of these? Yeah, I think, um, I think at that point, and this probably was right around 2014, 2015, um, like the the whole slouchy beanie thing was was happening. It was in um, in popular fashion and also like this niche handmade fashion at the time. Really slouchy hats, nice texture, ribbing, a giant pom pom. And I think the reason that people gravitated towards it so much was this was a style that was a little bit tricky to find in crochet patterns. There were tons of knit options. Um, but with crochet, it was a little bit harder and it was, there just weren't as many patterns available. So I think this one, uh, really caught on. And one of the things that I did at that time, while that pattern was still really new is I would post back to back photos of this pattern, but in different colors. Um, I would have like two tone ones. I'd have one with a really big pom pom and one with a small one. So I showed a whole bunch of different variations that people could make with this one pattern. So even if you didn't like how it looked in pink, maybe you'll like how it looked in gray with speckles, you know? So that was kind of a I don't know, an unconscious marketing tactic that I used to really push this pattern when it first came out. Yeah. And I think with the hat, it also feels very doable. Like I can crochet. I actually, I can barely knit, but I can crochet. <laughs> and I saw that hat. I mean, I didn't see it back when you released it, but I did see it when I was researching <laughs> you for this <laughs> podcast. And I was like, oh, I can make that. Like, I feel yeah. like um, there's something about – and, you know, even with knitting, I do feel like uh, a hat is often where people begin and yes. because mm -hmm. it, it just is like a, a finite, doable project and yeah. um, and it's very satisfying um, and, you know, anyway, I saw it and I was like, oh, I would love to make that. It just <laughs> seems – Yeah, it seems really um, approachable. Yeah. Um, plus, it's trendy and I think you mm -hmm. hit on, on both of those, of those things. And so you said the pattern itself was terrible. What oh, did you sure. – not understand about pattern writing <laughs> everything <laughs> <laughs> I think at that at that point I was still so young in crochet that you know making that leap from making something to designing something is way bigger than I think some people understand and at that point I was so I was naive enough to just take the chance. But, you know, down the line, when I look back at the pattern, I was like, wow, you didn't understand how to write gauge. You didn't understand how to measure yarn. Like my original yardage that I put in that pattern is so much higher than what's actually necessary because I used a bathroom scale to measure it as opposed to like a small kitchen scale or something that's a bit more accurate. Um, I didn't understand formatting, like the just formatting the pattern to make it look somewhat attractive. Um, it was literally just a plain old word document. Like there were no columns or just any like these are these are things you learn over time. And especially from seeing a lot more patterns um, and you get better. But, you know, looking back at the original format of that original pattern that like the 
photos were bad. It was all, it was just all bad. <laughs> but, okay, uh, but, right. But, but, the, but you got it out there and that's what was important. It's like you didn't exactly. allow the fact that you didn't really know what you were doing to stop you from doing it. Absolutely. I didn't, I don't think I knew at the time how much I didn't know. You know, and I think that's um, it's kind of a double edged sword right now with folks who are trying to transition to designing because there's so much more information out there about how to write patterns and how to design that some folks do get kind of caught up with like, oh, I haven't figured this out or I haven't tried that technique yet. So I'm not ready to put my pattern out. And I'm really grateful at that point that I had the um, I was so unselfconscious about this pattern that I just put it out because it was really the catalyst for everything that's come after it. And that's why my advice for folks trying to get into design is always just just do it. Put that first one out there. You can, you know, get it tech edited and tested and just put it out there. And you can always go back and revise it because there's going to be fresh eyes coming into this craft all the time. People who don't know how bad this pattern was back in 2015. They're only seeing this new version now that you know more and know better. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So, so, um, what happened next? In other words, you put this pattern out there. This is a new product for you because prior to this, everything is a finished piece that you're selling yep. in person at a craft fair. And so now you've got this document and I'm assuming it was a digital document that you were mm-hmm. selling. So that's a, a digital document of instructions is actually a really different product than a finished, you know, shawl or a finished hat, for example. For sure. So, um, so how did that change things for you? Yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a tricky transition because I didn't expect the pattern to do super well. And I mean, of course, at at that time, my threshold for success on sales was like one a week, you know, and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's selling like hotcakes. So, you know, at that point, um, I needed to kind of pivot the way that I spoke about, you know, TL Yarn Crafts and and what I do and who my audience was, because the people who buy scarves are not the same audience as the people who make scarves. So I needed to kind of adjust the way that I talked about my business and what I had to sell. And I also had to kind of pick up a different um, set of skills as far as selling digital product versus finished product. Because even selling on Etsy, for example, you know, it's kind of a different workflow to post a physical product versus a digital one and make sure, you know, everything's uploaded properly. So that was a bit of a transition. But again, you just kind of learn on the fly. You know, it's not so big of a learning curve that you have to wait weeks or months to be able to do it. Um, So at that point, once I realized that there was a market for selling patterns, I kind of started looking at some of the other things that I wanted to create to sell at craft shows and see if I could design something that, you know, conceptually I wanted to be able to sell in my own booth. So that's when products like the um, Level 4 Infinity Scarf came about. Uh, I did some uh, some mittens that I have since removed the pattern because they're actually really bad. And if I ever re-release them, I'd need to put a lot of work into it. So there were a lot of other pieces um, that made sense for me to sell at my booth that I kind of started to loosely design, put them into patterns and put those up in my shop. So Eventually, it got to the point where I was still selling at craft shows, but the design side was really starting to pick up and the audience for the design side was a lot more active. So on Instagram or Ravelry or even just via email, they had questions, they had suggestions, they had requests as far as like types of patterns that they would like to see me design. And I was really receptive to that because I'm like, okay, well, you know, clearly the demand is here. And if I can just hone my skills a little bit more, kind of turn that part of my brain on the design side, you know, maybe I can make a go of this. Yeah. And as far as the income is concerned, it's also very different in that it's passive income, right? So you do all the work up front um, of, you know, designing, writing, editing, you know, pho- photographing, there's a bunch of work and it's pretty intensive. Um, but once it's done, right, um, the documents created, um, the listings created, et cetera, then it can sell infinitely you know, forever. Um, And that income now, of course, you're answering questions, as you Mm -hmm. said, Um, you're helping people, you're marketing. So it's not, you know, the 
the term passive income isn't really accurate because none of that yeah. part is actually passive. Um, you're creating new samples, you're creating videos, you're doing a bunch of things to help um, get the word out about those things. But um, but as far as creating the product, it's been done and it can really sell while you sleep. Right, exactly. It which is which is really really nice. Like the conversation about how important passive income is in in a handmade business. That conversation wasn't really being had at the time, so I didn't. Um, I don't think I really grasped the fact that I was potentially sitting on a gold mine. Like the the idea that people who got into the pattern writing game in 2013, 2014, like the really heavy hitters on Etsy and Ravelry, like they. I mean, it's like they literally found gold because it, it, there were so many of us that um, were new to these communities and we're like, oh, that pattern's really cute. It's only five bucks. Throw it in the cart. Like, no big deal. You know, spending such a small amount of money on something that you can find the value in by actually making it like it was a no brainer. So at that point in 2015 and 16, when I started designing these really kind of rudimentary patterns and putting them out there and waking up to having made money, like that was such a new concept. And all through college and high school, everything that I ever learned about making money, like nobody ever talked about passive income and digital products. Like this was just brand new and it was it was a whole new world for me. Yeah, it's it and it really can transform your business. Um, it did for me as well when I started selling digital products in 2013. And, um, and those same products that I designed way back then, which my goodness is now seven years ago, um, they still <laughs> sell and they, they're selling while I'm recording this podcast with you, which is, you know, and it's wonderful. And I'm sure yours are selling while we're talking as well. So there's something really nice about that. Um, for sure. And, um, and, and so, so that's great. And, and I do wonder, I wanted to touch on this briefly, if we could, um, about, um, crochet versus knitting and whether you ever feel that kind of tension there around, uh, I don't know, maybe feeling a little bit like the underdog or a little bit like the market is smaller or it's just a different kind of customer. Um, I've talked to some crochet designers in the past who have kind of chafed against that or whether you kind yeah. of just look at it differently and sort of embrace the, the, maybe the crochet market and it's up for its own idiosyncrasies. Yeah. I, um, I, I mean, you definitely can't ignore there, there is kind of this, you know, sibling rivalry between knit and crochet, you know, as a as a business owner, and I think also as a maker. But if anything, I use it a bit like motivation, because I think in that in that vein, there's so much that has gone like unspoken about in crochet, there's techniques that we're not using or certain yarns that we haven't fully explored. Um, So I just I use it like, you know, well, since our market is a little bit smaller, let's see what new conversations we can have. And not necessarily new, because I mean, crochet has been around for a really long time. Everything that's that pretty much could be done has been done. But there are um, maybe older techniques or ideas that we can build up and and shine some light on in kind of this modern situation that we're in. So honestly, I, I'm a little bit grateful for the fact that there's a bit of tension between knit and crochet because it gives us a lot more opportunity to kind of explore that craft and and put crochet up on a pedestal a little bit because it's, you know, I think knitting does get most of the shine, but there's just a lot of creativity available in crochet that we can really bring out. I think so too. And I think the challenge of turning the fabric that crochet creates into something really sophisticated and beautiful and wearable is a really neat one. Oh yeah, definitely. And there's so many amazing, amazing designers, people that I admire and I see their stuff and I'm like, wow, you know, even with designing for the last, you know, five-ish years, this is something I've never seen before. And this is so cool and I can't wait to share with all my friends. So, you know, even as a designer myself, there's still a part of me that just is a maker and can appreciate someone's creativity and ingenuity and the the fact that their brain looks at this yarn stuff a little bit differently than I do. And, and then on top of that, it's crocheted, which 
you know, just makes me love it even more. Absolutely. And I want to talk about some of those collaborations that you do, because you do a lot of collaborations and a lot of shout outs to other makers, other shop owners. Um, You're not afraid to promote other people in, you know, Mm -hmm. your blog posts and your videos, um, in your Instagram. You're very generous, I feel like, in the way that you approach that. Whereas I think some people would be more guarded and would say, well, I don't want to, you know, send people in my audience away to, uh, to other shops, why would I do that? So if you can talk a little bit about your sort of strategy or ideas around collaboration and around shout outs and things like that, that would be great. For sure. I think the, um, I think one of the, one of the ideas that I've always had and one of my mantras when it comes to business is that there is space for all of us. You know, I think over time, this market has gotten quite saturated. There's a lot of people doing a lot of similar things to what I'm doing. And and there's a lot more designers that are popping up, people who are doing awesome things with crochet. And instead of feeling intimidated or um, a bit more selfish with my designs or my time or my platform, I think it's super important to open it up and say, here's this really cool thing that I just saw. You guys need to go pick up this yarn or get this pattern or support this person because that's how you become part of a community. That's how you continue to build up your own business by staying visible, but you're also helping somebody else in, in bringing them into your audience because even within the realm of crochet, there's so many other kind and niches like one of the one of my friends that I recently promoted um just in just in like a random story on my Instagram was a friend of mine that does amigurumi she makes little crocheted dolls and they're so cute and she did a photo with like a whole bunch of them of different colors kind of broken up by color in this square so there's maybe like a hundred of these little dolls in this really great photo and I'm like this photo is bringing me huge joy. She's so talented. She's great with color. Like this is just everything about this photo is awesome. And I shared that and she was grateful for that. And this is somebody that I know personally, but I'll never feel intimidated sharing her stuff to my platform because I mean, it's just cross pollination. Everybody wins. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you even have it like in your, I think it's even in your profile or something like that, where you're just like, you know, use my hashtag for the opportunity to be featured or something like that. And I, I think that's really inviting, you know, to tell people like, you know, this is kind of what I'm part of what I'm about. Part of what my business is about is, is sharing the love. Yeah, I think as we, especially once you've built a business out of this thing, like none of us grow just kind of in our own bubbles. You know, there's only so far you're going to get with your own audience. It's by doing collaborations. It's by cross-promoting each other. It's by sharing even, you know, content generated by your own audience that you continue to grow and show how much you appreciate um, this work that you get to do. Because it's because of you know, my Instagram community or my YouTube community because of all the people who've signed up for my newsletter. It's because of them that I'm able to do what it is that I do. It's because of the the income and the positive energy that they help generate that I can continue to crochet for a living. So, you know, just I just want to turn some of that really great energy back out to the community and say, hey, you know, we're going to we're going to grow and get stronger together. And so can you talk a little bit about the plan that you made to quit your day job, which mm-hmm. your day job sounded like a fantastic day job, by the way, but, but you did leave to focus on TL Yoncraft's, um, you know, full time. And you have been doing that now for several years. And I know that for a lot of people listening, that is their dream to be able to focus on their handmade business full time, but it, it just seems so difficult to do. And so, um, you know, how did you leave? Did you just, you know, pick up and leave one day or did you make mm-hmm. a, a plan with savings or did you go to part time for a period and then leave or, or how did you work it? Yeah, it was um, it was a really interesting situation because it was kind of part spur of the moment. But in hindsight, I'd kind of been planning for it for a while. So in 2016, uh, I transitioned. It might have been like mid 2015. I'm not exactly sure, but I transitioned into a job working for um, our local international airport here in Columbus. And I was working in HR there. So I was doing recruitment, which was really fun because, you know, you want to be on the side of HR that's giving people jobs. Right. So I was 
really enjoying that, doing super well there. Um, I had a great boss, a really awesome team, and I was still doing TL Yarn Crafts on the side. And at this point, I was pretty squarely in the design side. Um, I kind of got burnt out on craft shows, finally decided to quit doing those and was designing full time for my handmade business. Um, So this opportunity came up for this new department, a new job that was going to allow me to use some of my nonprofit experience, a lot of my HR experience to do um, some recognition and also some, um, some philanthropy with the airport. And it would have been a really big position. I would have been able to transition over with my boss that I loved at the time. But gratefully, at that same time, there were some awesome collaboration ideas, some companies that I'd been just dying to work with. And and all this was coming up at the same time. And uh, I go to my husband and I was like, oh my gosh, like I have to make a decision. I was kind of between a rock and a hard place. I was like, either I'm going to jump in feet first with this job at the airport, make sure I do really, really well because it's going to be this two-person department and we need to prove that we want to continue getting funding to do this awesome work. Or I need to jump in feet first with TL Yarn Crafts. I need to focus on these collaborations. I need to build up my social media presence. Like there was so much I wanted to do for my business at that time. And my husband's like, yeah, you need to make a decision because it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's happening. Um, and uh, we ran the numbers and kind of talked through it. And I was like, what do you what do you think? Like, do you think I could do this full time? And, and he's been my sounding board since the beginning. Like, it's, it's, since I moved down to Ohio, I've only lived with him. We don't have any kids. My family is not down here. So we've always been each other's um, kind of person in that way. So from the moment that the idea hit me that, you know, maybe I could run my business full time, I was talking to him just to just to be my support person. And uh, one day we were finally like, you know what, we'll give it a year. If it doesn't work out, getting my job, get going to get another job, get my job back or, or another job, whatever. So I was like, that's a perfect compromise. So uh wrote up my my two weeks notice and uh, I... <laughs> I actually cried when I put in my notice because I love my job so much and I love my boss so much. Yeah. It wasn't a situation where I was like miserable at work and I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, handmade forever because I hate working. Like, no, I loved what I did. And it was a really hard decision to leave. Um, But she respected it and, and appreciated it. She actually supported my shop by putting in some orders for several years. Like she's a, a really good friend now. But uh, that was tough. Um. But yeah, we we put in that year and did our taxes and we we're like, huh, not bad. So so we just kind of kept it going from there. But that transition was it was tricky and there was a lot of uncertainty. You know, when you go into business for yourself, there's a lot of things that you start to realize that you just don't have those perks anymore. You know, I didn't have healthcare through my job anymore. I didn't have a regular paycheck for my job. I didn't have um even just the morning routine of getting up and showering and driving to work and being at work, you know, you don't have that anymore. So it was a, it was a major transition. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's always this fear too, like you have to pedal the bike and you have to mm-hmm. pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal. And, pedal. <laughs> and if you don't pedal, if you get off the bike, even for one minute, it's like, what is going to happen? You know? Yep. Um, and yep. it, it's really on you and um, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. That- first year and and my husband can attest to this that first year I don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life because I had to prove I think to myself and to him that this was actually a viable decision um so it and you're absolutely right when you go into work for yourself you wear all the hats so if you wake up one day and don't do any work like there's nothing going on in the background like if you don't work the work doesn't get done that's right and, uh, you know, it's, it, it was really, really touch and go and very tricky that first year. Yeah, I will say I was um, a little bit in tears yesterday because, of course, we're home right mm-hmm. now on this stay-at-home order. And um, I had so many family interrupting me yesterday and it was like getting to be two or three o'clock and I couldn't, I hadn't done anything. And I was like, I, I can't 
this can't go on. (laughs) I have to do my work. Like I have to sit down. You guys have to get out of my room. Like I have to do the, you know, because yeah, Yeah. I have to, you know, and, um, it's been hard. It's been hard right now. So, um, so you, I did want to talk about Instagram because you have a a really amazing and beautiful Instagram following. You have 79.9, uh, thousand Instagram followers as of last night when I was (laughs) writing this up. I know. Wow, is right. So I wanted to ask you if you could kind of just explain your Instagram routine, because I think that's something that people are really interested in hearing kind of, you know, what do you do? Uh, you know, whether it's daily or however often you post, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're getting ready, you've got a, you've got a photo or you, you know, you need to post something. What, what does that look like? What does that routine look like? Sure. Uh, so as far as actually posting on Instagram, I try to keep the amount of time I spend on that on a daily basis as low as possible. So I spend a lot of time throughout just kind of my, my week or my month randomly taking photos of things that I think would make good Instagram photos. So if I'm working on a blanket on the first of the month, I might not even plan to post about that blanket till the next month, you know, but I'm going to take the photo now. So I just kind of have a bank of these already edited, well done photos, and then I can, you know, slot them into my content calendar down the line. Um, And by content calendar, I basically mean a a monthly calendar that I print off every month and fill in with what I'm going to post on social media. It is, it's such a bare bones, like analog system. I love that because it makes it so easy for people. It's literally a pencil and a paper. Yeah. And, and I think there's, you know, as I continue to kind of talk through my workflow and better understand how I work, I try and keep this whole running a business thing as simple as possible, because that's the only way that it's going to be sustainable for a person like me. Like I can't, I, I have never been able to keep up with like a digital planner or even like a traditional planner. I work off of post-it notes and scrap pieces of paper. Um, I, I have my design notebooks that I swear by, but it's it's still just pen and paper. It's not anything fancy. So um, when it comes to Instagram, I'll take photos kind of just throughout my maker life. My and maker are you day. using your phone for those? Mm-hmm. For okay. the most part, yeah. Um, so my uh, my product photos, like my finished product photos, I have a photographer for. And I usually see her about four times a year. I'll just make a whole bunch of stuff. And then we'll spend a couple hours together taking a ton of photos, which I'll save up. Um, but as far as like the day-to-day or like my work in progress photos, those are all with my phone. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. And then are you editing them when you take them? Are you editing them when you post them? I'll usually edit them when I take them because when I take them, like I'll like the whatever is encouraging me to take the photo is usually kind of that that same catalyst to say, like, what type of mood are we looking for with this picture? So I'm going to go in and edit it um, immediately because that inspiration is what's going to influence the editing. Okay. Like I have um, I have a I have the apps that I like to use. I have generally the filters, but it's all that fine tuning. So adjusting the contrast and the shadows and the whites and the in the color and all of that um, is is part of that moment. So okay. I'll edit the photos right on the spot. Got it. Okay. And so they're all kind of in your phone. And then mm-hmm. do you post every day? Not anymore. So I used to be a diehard Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. gotta post type person. And uh, I probably did that for like two or three years. And now I'm like, "Mm, maybe like three times a week, you know, whenever it feels most appropriate. Like before I was posting religiously because um, I was under the impression that the algorithm rewarded you basically being in the app and being active in the app as much as possible. So I was like, well, if I post at the same time every single day, of course, you know, people are going to see my post and I'm going to pop up at the top of their timelines. And, you know, it's that consistency was rewarded by Instagram. But what I'm finding now is that putting a day or two between my posts actually helps them perform better, Hmm. Um, which is so backwards to what I've been doing for years now. But, um, you know, not only do my photos perform better, but I also find that by spacing them out, I have more important things to say when I make, when I wait a couple days. So instead of just throwing up a photo and saying, Hey, this is what I'm working on today. I can, you know, plan to have different themes around my photos, or maybe they're, you know, maybe I'm posting about a 
particular event or I'm debuting a new pattern, like I, I, I'm more intentional about what I'm saying and what I'm posting because I'm not posting every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you respond to comments? Oh, yeah. I love responding to comments. So one thing that I know for sure about Instagram is it does um, it does reward you for being active in the app, especially right after you post. So as comments start to come in, especially for that first hour or two after I post, I try to stay present and respond to comments as quickly as possible. And then usually after that, I'll just kind of put my phone down because I'm burnt out, you know, staring at the phone all for the last couple hours. And um, usually that following morning, you know, after I brush my teeth and wash my face, do my morning rituals before I pick up my phone, um, I'll then go in and respond to comments. Okay. And what about stories? I love stories. Some days I really go overboard. Like, you know how sometimes you'll go back and look at your stories and you've got like 50 little dots at the top. Posting stories all day. Um, but I really love stories, especially right now with this um, kind of stay at home order because, you know, really creating interesting content when you've been stuck in the house for what's essentially four weeks, five weeks. Um, it's a, it's a really interesting challenge. Yeah. So, so I really love sharing kind of how I'm getting through my days or fun things that I'm working on or, you know, different people that I'm currently working with, um, in my stories. It's just, it just feels so much more organic. Um, okay, great. And I also know that you're amazing on video, just regular video, not just stories mm-hmm. video, but you mm-hmm. do, um, you do like a video podcast and mm-hmm. you film videos, um, fairly frequently. And, um, and you're very, like, very, I mean, first of all, they're well lit and very beautiful Thanks. to look at, but you're also very, like, upbeat. And, um, and I, you know, I, I have a book about, um, uh, by Lilla Rogers, who's an art licensing expert and um and and one of the things that she always says is and that that I agree with is people buy your joy. Sure. And I I I thought of that when I was watching your videos because you're so joyous and I do think that you know people watch that and they want to be part of it and they will buy they will buy your joy. Um so I I I wondered if you had any um, sort of thoughts or tips for people who are filming videos or maybe want to get into filming videos. Absolutely. Well, first, I just have to say, I love that line. Well, people will buy your joy because it is so true. It's so true. And, and regardless of your medium or like what platform you're on, people can feel that emotion. Like, I, I think that um, that idea of trying to help somebody feel an emotion when you're trying to sell something or when you're trying to teach something like that's been talked about for ages. Um, and that's exactly what I try to do. And I think if anything, I try to let people feel my passion for the craft. But I think too, um, part of my audience are people who are trying to learn something for the first time. And I just want to be encouraging, you know, like sometimes trying a new technique, a new, a new stitch, um, a new pattern can be really intimidating. And people might come into it with some trepidation, like, oh, I don't know if I can really do this. My message is always, you can. You can do it. I'm going to give you the tools. I'm going to give you the time. I'm going to give you my expertise. I'm going to break down, you know, the the easy way to do this as opposed to maybe, you know, what you've been taught before. Um, really just to try and be as encouraging as possible. And so when it, when it comes to filming my videos, you know, I definitely put in the effort to make sure they look good because then that lowers the barrier of actually getting the information, right? Because we've all... I'm sure gone on YouTube searching for a stitch or a technique and the video is so poorly done that it's distracting and you couldn't learn from it if you wanted to. So I don't want there to be any distractions when it comes to my videos. I want to be able to get straight to the instruction. Um, And then from there, I just try to make sure I'm super organized. So as I go through my videos, I don't get to any points where like I have to double back and say something or, you know, where I missed a step. I, I just try to make sure that, you know, I'll spend like the day before prepping for my video um, so that when I actually record it, it's very seamless. And then when I edit it, um, people can just go straight through it, get the information they need and move on. Yeah. And I think with instructional videos too, people really want you to get to the point, you know? (laughs) Yeah. The shorter, the better. I think right now, kind of the sweet spot for YouTube videos is about 10 minutes. So when it comes to um, 
being a, a designer and a creative, saying everything you need to say on a topic in 10 minutes is a little tricky. So you have to get really creative with um, the types of videos that you create, how much information you cover in that short amount of time, and just making sure it's valuable. Because, you know, even getting somebody to watch something for 10 minutes is really hard. <laughs> It is hard, for sure. I know. Getting people to focus on anything is difficult, um, for sure. So, um, Tony, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations because you've got some great ones. So um, you have been listening to audiobooks using the Libby app. And I have never used the Libby app, although we are huge audiobook fans here. So tell us about that one. Yeah. So I, um, I love books. I've always loved to read. Reading's always been a really big part of my life. But as um, crochet started to kind of take over, I don't have any free hands to flip pages. And, you know, all of my time is kind of taken up with crochet. So I love listening to audiobooks. And um, it's always been important to me to, to support my libraries. And, you know, it's a cost savings as well. So it's really cool that Libby as an app allows you to borrow books, borrow audiobooks from your library. And I love that app because um, their their library is just so large and every market is a little bit different. So like the books I can borrow from my library here in Columbus might be slightly different than what my mom can get back home or what a friend can get out in California. Um, but because of that, I'm listening to books that I might not have ever you know picked up uh, at my bookstore. So it's just a really fun kind of, I don't know investigation to see what's available in my local bookstore. And then I just, you know, put those books on in the background while I'm, you know, crocheting and and I can listen to a book and work at the same time. So I have as a goal that I want to read or listen to Moby Dick because I've never listened to it. And I was just saying to my husband the other day, I think I need to get it as an audiobook because I'm never going to actually read it otherwise. So there you go. That I'm sure they have that one. That just I'm seems sure, like I'm something they would sure. definitely have. So. You know what's really fun too with audiobooks that I'm starting to, to learn is like there's certain voice actors. Yeah. That I, I start to follow. So it's not even so much about the story or the author anymore. It's like, ooh, such and such just did another book. I'm going to go check that out. Um, so you really get, a, a, there's like a whole different, I don't know, world of people that you start getting attached to when you listen to audiobooks. Totally. Yeah. I love the voice actor who did all the Harry Potter books. He did such yeah. a great job. So, mm-hmm. and we've listened to them so many times. So, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, okay. So you also love double ended Tunisian crochet hooks from Denise Interchangeables. Yeah. So I, um, one of the, one of the techniques that I've really been spending a lot of time with over the last couple of years is Tunisian crochet, which is this interesting intersection between knitting and crochet. And, uh, there's a technique within Tunisian crochet where you can work in the round and it basically involves putting two hooks on the same tool. Um, so you can work in the round. And even with being a designer, having done this for a long time, one of the things that I really love is just continuing to learn. So working in the round is something that I had to, you know, find the resources and teach myself because I didn't know how to do it. Um, so Denise Interchangeables creates the cro- the Tunisian crochet hooks that I've loved since I started um, kind of learning this technique. And I just bought another set of them to be able to create double-ended hooks and kind of practice working in the round. That's so cool. I never thought about putting two hooks on that. That's super yeah. cool. Yeah, I have to it actually looks, see how this looks. It looks a little funky yeah. when you're working with it. But I mean, it, the fabric that it creates is is so cool because Tunisian looks completely different when you work it in the round. So cool. Very neat. Um, and then your last recommendation um, are your house plants, which mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I'm like a super failure as a houseplant caretaker. <laughs> I have some cactuses. I have four cactuses, uh, five that I'm keeping alive right now, which is a major <laughs> victory. Um, nice. But I'm like the world's worst gardener. So, um, so tell us about... <laughs> your success you know it's been it's been a a a very interesting roller coaster taking care of house plants because um you know since I spend so much time at home like I I don't have a studio space or anything like I'm working at home all the time I really love the idea of surrounding myself with plants having that life and having that greenery around me to just you know, continue to motivate me through my days. Um, So I've got a bit obsessive with them. So I have, uh, I think at this point, maybe like 21 plants dotted around my house. 
And uh, when I first started getting into plants, I think I had like two. I had like a pathos that was doing really, really well. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can raise anything. I'm going to be great at this. And that is not the case. I can't even count on my fingers and toes how many plants I've killed in this house. So just uh, experimenting with like what works and what doesn't. And, you know, for my lighting and living here in the Midwest, like even in the middle of spring, we can have a whole week of gray days and some plants just can't deal with that. So you know, it's been it's been fun experimenting and trying new things and, you know, adjusting kind of the way I go about my daily chores and making sure my plants are taken care of. Mm, I, my main problem is I love them too much. Too much. Yes. yes. And then I want <laughs> to give them so much water and um, and so much plant food. I just want to love them. Yeah. And um, that's exactly. Yeah. And it's and it's like, honestly, if you don't know a whole lot about plants, like when someone says water sparingly, like what does that even mean? Right. You know? To me, like that means like three times a week. Exactly. <laughs> as opposed to five times a week. You know, it's, it's, so it, it's such a it's it's an experiment and it's something that I'm really enjoying because it is really rewarding when like some of the plants do especially well. And it's like, yes, I got this, you know, yeah. so. And I see people's studios that have all these plants and I'm like, that's yeah. amazing. I just need fake plants. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, I honestly have been seriously considering just like, you know, interspersing just some fake couple. plants with my just ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's terrible because my mom is like the best gardener ever. So yeah. Oh, anyway, it's it's goals. It's goals, but I, I'm not there yet. So, well, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. It was so fun chatting with you, Abby. Thanks for having me. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Thank you to amybarrickman.com for sponsoring today's episode. Amy's shop includes a vintage image library. DIY ebooks and project ideas to fuel your creative spirit. Let Amy guide you through discovering delightful handmade treasures and timeless techniques from the past to inspire your modern makes. Subscribe to Amy's newsletter to receive a free PDF of retro art printables and a magic pattern. Use the coupon code CIA20. That's CIA20 for 20% off at amybarrickman.com. Now through May 31st, 2020. Thank you so much, Amy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.